Welcome to the Hurricane Labs podcast. I'm Heather, and today we're going to be talking about open source security tools. Joining me, I have Eric, Josh, and Kurt from our SOC team to share what some of their favorite tools are. Thanks for joining me, guys. I appreciate it. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves, and then we'll dive in. I'm Eric Patterson. I'm one of the SOC Tier 1 team leads here at Hurricane. Josh Newbecker, SOC architect. Yeah, I'm Kurt. I'm another one of the architects here at Hurricane Labs. Before we get into the specific tools, uh, can you tell us a little bit about why open source specifically? What benefits do open source tools offer? <laughs> like the features that the open source tools have to offer for them on top of it being free. I mean, that's usually free. Yeah. yeah. You, you can get some pretty decent products that work well. Um, if you find bugs in it, you can submit bugs and have, you know, individual yeah, better collaboration. Yeah. Usually benefit of open source is having like a lot of eyes on the software and it being secure. Although it's not true for all open source projects, like Log4j. I was literally just about to say, well, that was open source. (laughs) Yeah, one of the things to always remember also with open source is never use any default passwords that are included in their configs. Always make sure you're changing that to something personal. I think it was for anything, man. Yeah, anything, but especially like using any kind of Git open source uh, software. All right, so let's go ahead and start with some of your favorite tools for just basic security measures. And then we'll uh, look a little bit more specifically at like testing attacks and detections and OSINT uh, re- and researching IOCs. So what are your favorite tools to use when setting up or strengthening your security stance? Well, as, as far as uh, for me, one of the things I like a lot is a, a good password manager. Um, it can definitely <clears throat> help in a, keep a, an environment more secure, not having your users writing things down or keeping things stored in plain text. And as far as a, a good open source password manager, uh, Bitwarden has always been a go-to for me with that. It uh, offers a pretty robust uh, encryption with uh, salting and, and pretty deep uh, encryption on it. And uh, it also allows for on-prem hosting. If you'd like to put it on your own Linux server, store it on-prem, have your own instance of it, manage it yourself, you can do that. Or you can use the uh, cloud-based service that they offer for free, which is very secure and hosted very well. I've never had issues with it. They also have uh, Android apps that tie in very well with it and browser extensions that work great. Uh, it's a nice alternative to LastPass, which uh, has kind of shifted recently in their pricing model. And now, especially for personal use, requires you to either use mobile or desktop. And if you want to use both, you have to pay. Whereas Bitwarden, you can run it yourself, um, keep it free, and not have to worry about that. I'll tell you what, though, as far as uh, Bitwarden, because I also use it personally, the mobile app does a fantastic job from the phone. I've had no problems with it. Um, you can set up to unlock with your fingerprint and from there simply <clears throat> have it input or even create passwords for um, apps as well as, you know, things on your browser. Yeah, I like the interface for it on the mobile even better than like something like LastPass. And the sharing on it is also great. Yeah, it's definitely a lot cleaner interface. As far as like general recommendations for security for everyday people, like uBlock is open source to protect you from a lot of the nonsense on the internet. Not only that, man, it makes YouTube not suck. Yeah, yeah, I, I would highly recommend you block, uh, <laughs> especially the ability to add custom block lists uh, from various sites. Uh, there's a lot you can you can do with it, and it definitely is a big form of protection for. Uh, I just um, think for even usability on sites, like put the whole oh, protection yeah. aspect out the window. Like if you turn that off and go to majority of websites, 
like hell if you went to a news page website the amount of intrusive advertisements and everything that's just blasted everywhere i'd say you blocked is a pretty pretty good job of getting rid of all that oh yeah i mean it's so effective i've seen there was a recent court case where people were or where they uh, were trying to say that you block was and like similar ad blockers were copyright infringement because they were changing the structure of the website by blocking the ads but that got tossed out good because literally what they do with some of the ads is almost similar to malware in some ways and how intrusive yeah. it can be on your browser so i mean to fight yeah. the stupidity of ads and it, it doesn't like just block ads either. Like it also will protect you from phishing and malware. It, it maintains block lists for those as well. Just shady sites. Yeah, it's definitely definitely something. Anytime I get a new PC or a new laptop or anything, it's the first thing I install um, on the browser because trying to browse the web anymore without a competent ad blocker is just annoying most of the time. I don't know if we're going away from o open source tools at this point, but another browser add, two, two browser add-ons that are fantastic is uh, HTTPS everywhere. I mean, I, I think I've Firefox now Chrome. If you go into settings, there's actually an option to force HTTPS browser wide. It won't let you do anything over HTTP, which I would highly recommend turning on. And then dark reader, <laughs> maybe not from the security realm of things, but if you're staring at a computer for eight hours a day, it helps your eyeballs from falling out. It basically would just change the, uh, a lot of the white on the page to more of like a dark mode that you'd find in like a, the Windows operating system or Mac or something. That's pretty good. Yeah, I definitely like Dark Reader a lot. I know some sites are a little incompatible with it, but it's easy enough to flip it on and off for those. But for working early mornings or something in an office or in like a dim environment, sometimes it's nice not getting blasted with a bright white light when you're visiting a web page. What about your favorite tools for testing attacks and detections? I'm constantly using uh, Splunk's attack range project uh, for building up test environments in AWS to run attacks, test detections, um, to all write a lot of our, our searches and come up with quality things that uh, actually detect what we're looking for. Uh, it works with AWS uh, using Terraform, and it also has a local version using Vagrant and VirtualBox you want to go free, but it takes uh, a little work to get that working. Yeah, it also includes uh, another open source project. Uh, it's built into Splunk Attack Range, which is Atomic Red Team, which is a project for simulating normal attacks that you would see uh, on a network or from a pen test team. Uh, things like dumping passwords or installing some kind of persistence. So you can, you can run those Atomic Red Team atomics, they're called, to test, uh, to run a detection. And you can have like a search up in Splunk to see whether it detected the atomic. Well, on top of that, Josh, I just think the ease of use of being able to set up in you know, the Splunk attack range and be able to a have all the data automatically forwarded to Splunk, so we can not only write SPL quickly, we don't have to mess around with setting up forwarders or anything. Yep. Um, you can literally choose if we like if you need X amount of workstations or you know your server. DC and whatnot. Yeah, it, it, AWS um, has a couple options. It only it limits you to one uh, domain controller and one server, uh, unless you go and modify it yourself. And gotcha. Uh, I just know we've done multiple workstations before. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know they, they with Azure with the Azure integration, you can spin up Windows clients, but not with the AWS version. So for for Windows, you're you're that's kind of the downside to attack range is that you're limited to the systems that they have. You can turn them on and off just with a flag in the config, uh, and you can have uh, a DC, a server, an IDS, 
Splunk server, of course, Kali. So the thing that's been really nice, in my opinion, is just being able to start a brand new AD setup and to configure what you need in it for a specific you know, exploit you're maybe trying to test or even just trying to figure out what logs are created from specific settings getting changed in AD configurations. Yep, and it has a lot of great logging right out of the box with syslog process monitoring, looking at registry, also all the Windows logging that's available. You can turn on like pretty much every single Windows log just in the config. Also has stream, so you can get HTTP, DNS logs from there. Um, and also once you spin it up, if you're trying to run a specific detection, you can always turn on that logging yourself and the forwarder's already there and you can just set up the monitor. It, since it's hosted in AWS, if you're collaborating with a team that you know is across you know, the United States or you don't have a VPN into the local network or which maybe you had uh, your setup hosted, it's really easy to log into the GUIs. You're just hitting a public IP. Yep, and there's a configuration for a whitelist, so it's pretty safe. So only the IPs on a whitelist can access the host. Have you, because I, I don't think I've been with you, Josh, when we've when you've done some of the Atomic Red Team side of it. Can you kind of go through like the process a bit of how you would use that with an attack range? Yeah, so I have a Docker container uh, that you can pull that has all the configuration and stuff, and you have that like on your like local host. Um, you pull down that Docker container, you configure the, the configuration file for it, tell it like your AWS credentials and you tell it like what servers you want to spin up and you just run build, wait 15 minutes or so. And uh, then you have that up in AWS. And once you have that, you can just start running your tests, RDP into the Windows host, SSH into the Linux ones, run your attack, see if the logs showed up in Splunk and then start writing your detections around it. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I've I've been meaning to look more into that since you've set up some of that, but like it's it's really interesting all you can do with it and the ability to yeah double check your searches, make sure certain signatures are being generated by different. Yeah, it's certainly not as good as something you can set up yourself, but it's a whole lot more convenient okay. and being able to just tear it down and build it. I was just about to say, Josh, like as far as it's not as robust as setting up something at home, like because I know for the, when the log for J stuff was coming out, I was looking at potentially trying to do, you know, replicate that and that being a real pain trying to get the vulnerable version of Java installed or to get that set up, you'd probably be better off spinning up a Docker image and on like a local test network or something to maybe yeah. do that. Yeah, I remember we also ran into an issue with DLM relays uh, oh, when, the, we, when we were trying to, to, to run an exploit using uh, multicast traffic and yep. we realized that there is no multicast traffic in AWS. Yeah, we were sniffing for traffic that didn't even exist because it was getting canned. <laughs> so we were sitting there getting pretty frustrated, but there are limitations with it. But I would say if you're doing anything that's Windows Active Directory related, it does a pretty good job of letting you spin up the host quickly and get some testing done. What about for OSINT and researching uh, IOCs and payloads? What do you guys use for those? Um, so Eric, being the team lead of the SOC T1 team, why don't you talk about some of the uh, tools you guys are using daily? What's the one HL uses again? I assume you're talking about CyberChef, which is a, it's a nice tool for doing some encryption, decryption work. It's got a lot of different algorithms built into it. Uh, if we're looking at anything like encoded PowerShell or things like that, it's got a nice quick base 64 decryption so you can get right into figuring out exactly what was going on there. Uh, it also has a nice auto bake feature built into it, which uh, kind of tries to magic its way through a decryption and it'll analyze the inputted 
code and try to kind of figure out what encryption is being used there and it'll spit out the decrypted code and and the uh, method being used there but it's it's good for all kinds of things url decryption sometimes when people are trying to do injection via url and uh, decrypting some code through there <clears throat> but it's it's uh it's a really nice and really simple tool to set up yeah there's nothing better for like taking a payload and trying to figure out what it does like if it's base 64 or any kind of other encoding if it has compression all that like you can just very easy step-by-step -step modify the input and it'll show you the output very right. easy to use gui I was about to just say that is out of everything Josh and Eric mentioned that my opinion, the best part of it is you have almost like a, uh, a GUI that's broken to three parts on the left side. You have like, for example, encode base 64 decode, you could have your um, rot eight, you could do all kinds of different um, decryptions on it or encodings, but you drag and drop from the left to like this. Um, I don't like Q list in the middle where you can layer, you could be like, encode five different times with base 64 decode once. And then mm -hmm. from there, you'll have your input box on the right and the output of, so I could input hello world in the top, right? Maybe via my keyboard or text or whatever payload I'm trying to decode. And it'll put that out in the bottom right of the screen. So rather than trying to do all this via, via the command line, which can be a real pain, the, the GUI is what makes the, the tool really special in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, anything, especially nice, like you said, for anything that's encrypted several layers deep, rather than trying to use multiple tools and copy paste within things here, you can just layer it and just build through the, the decryption as you go. And it definitely uh, reduces a lot of the time for hunting through that kind of stuff. Yeah, perfect tool for CTFs too. Yep. Yeah, hands down. <laughs> Every single odd algorithm that you run across in CTFs, it's probably in CyberChef. And then on top of it too, if you want to it is hosted online. There's a on their, the GitHub link for them. Um, you could also host internally in your company if you choose to do so. And there's a Splunk add-on. Oh, really? Yeah. You can output things from an event in Splunk. Is that new? Like maybe some kind of Base64 encoded payload in PowerShell, and you can have your recipe right there. And is that new, Josh? Decode it. Yeah, I think it's pretty new. Okay. I was, I was thinking it was like... Recently. Yeah, I was thinking it was within like the last month or two from what I heard. I would explain why I'm like, whoa, that's cool. <laughs> I'd be interested to play with that, but I, I can't say I, I don't know. I don't really frequently see a need to decrypt the, the logs inside of like Splunk itself. Like a lot of times if you're trying to break down malware, you had some kind of encrypted payload sent, you could normally just copy and paste it into a tool. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to like automate something like it, uh, yeah. you want to have an ex exclusion and you have like a base 64 payload that's constantly there and you're looking for something specific in the base 64, yeah, I can That's think of fair. several specific instances uh, for like re-alerting IDS events with encrypted URL connections in there and you're trying to remove that specific uh, payload instance that slightly changes each time. That makes sense for that um, use case. I was thinking more so of like from the malware side of a bit, but for tuning, I could totally see it. What, Eric, what's a T1 use a lot for um, like digging into IOCs? Oh, uh, Machina. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really nice tool that we have here at Hurricane that's uh, managed on our own GitHub. But uh, you can plug in hashes, IPs, uh, various things, and you can link it up with uh, several different OSINT engines um, based on you know your licenses or keys that you might have or or, or th things of that sort, and it'll run through and give you a, a generated list at the end of 
pretty much all the OSINT it can gather from those sources. So rather than hitting like 10 different sources and plugging the IP into 10 different places or a hash, just plug it into one all encompassing place and it'll kick out all that information. It's something that we try to usually include in our tickets for any kind of uh, extra additional enrichment info for the, the client. And uh, it's a really nice tool that speeds up things. We even have started incorporating it more as an automated process to always kind of have that enrichment data provided for our alerts. Cool. And I use that a lot more when I was digging in this stuff, not as frequently doing more architect work, but checking the GitHub real quick, it looks like probably 25, 30 different data sources out of the box are able to get used with Machina. Is there a GUI or anything with that? Is, was that ever added or is it all CLI? I, th I believe it's all CLI. I don't think we've ever done any GUI with it. Um... It's, it's not too too difficult to figure out. I mean, you can have it kick the results out to a file. You can have multiple hashes generated at once, like ran through at once, just a little more time consuming. But there's a lot of different options for different output types and, and exactly how you want to scan and, and everything. It's pretty well crafted. I guess something similar with uh, a GUI would be Spiderfoot. I remember you showing that to me a couple of years ago, Kurt. Yeah, I found that early on. Um, it's kind of gotten a lot larger now. Um, I, I haven't personally poked with it too recently but back when i was doing like t1 like lead stuff here i had an instance spun up it's essentially it's similar to what our machina tool is or almost any osint tool you're gonna kind of see out in github or something special to a sock except the thing that's cool about spiderfoot is like josh said you get a full-fledged gui with it so not only can you look at i think there's like a hundred different or a hundred plus different websites you can pull data from with ioc so you can put an ip in there and pull from I've heard, like I said, you'll have to look at the list yourself, but there's a lot of different places it can pull from. Needless to say, though, the, the GUI on it, so let's say you put an IP in there. Josh, you might be aware of what I'm trying to think of. It's in Cali. I'm trying to think what the investigation tool in Cali is called. Maltigo, uh, I think. Yeah, Maltigo. Yeah. It's very similar to at least how it does the, the web of incorporating connections and stuff. So if you put an IP in there and it does a DNS lookup, on the IP, it might find a domain. And then from there, you can almost, almost like if you're using Burp Suite on how it could spider from one domain to one IP to whatever it finds on the web page and kind of group connections together. Um, it's, it's similar, but it'll give you a map of that. It's just a really cool tool if you find a specific URL or IP or something you're really trying to dig into or can make connections with. It took a while for the scans from what I recall. Um, we did have it hosted internally I think, I think for a call, we did have it digging through. Um, you could do Tor connections with it and have it go through the deep web on it, look relations of URLs or even um, specific file hashes. <laughs> you can do Bitcoin addresses as well, but I don't think we messed around <laughs> with that very often. But looking at the website now, there is a, uh, they seem to have taken off a lot since I was looking at them two years ago. They were more heavily focused on like the open source one, but that looks to be more of like their, um, less functional like uh, option now. So it might be worth playing with setting up. I'm sure you can still get some useful information, but it looks like they kind of moved more to a uh, paid setup for all the GUI options. But either way, Josh, yeah, that was, that was, that was cool for sure. DNS dumpster, I've used that a lot for um, doing like uh, reverse DNS lookups and telling you everything that's connected to an IP. That's a pretty solid. Uh, That'd be nice. Not sure if that's open source at this point. I'm just kind of talking about. <laughs> yeah, just websites that we use. Yeah, I'm just trying to yeah. think of tools that I've used on the daily that were really solid. I enjoyed that one. It's another one. Email rep.io. I've used that for poking at email addresses. Um, that one's just pretty straightforward. That one's looking for where and how recently uh, your uh, email has been used. So 
if someone's trying to, if someone just spun up a recent email for like phishing purposes or something, it'll basically tell you the age of the email and what sites it's registered to. So you can kind of easily identify like a user's email that's actively valid and used for reasonable purposes versus something used for phishing or trying to spoof. Uh, I mean, another one we use is that EML analyzer. That's a really nice uh, tool we have kind of included in our recon repo that allows for taking an email file, opening it and kind of breaking down everything that's included in the email attachments. Uh, it's uh, it's a nice tool when you're looking there, over something. Is there a GitHub for that, Eric? Yeah, it's uh, I think Nino Seki uh, EML Analyzer. But, gotcha. Yeah. I think that must have been added after I stopped poking in the T1 stuff. It was a fairly new thing that was added like, yeah, a couple months back, but I use it for a couple ones where I don't have like, I mean, when you don't have access to an environment, but you might have an EML file, it's nice to get a full picture of what exactly is being sent. Makes sense. You know, at the start of the talk, you guys mentioned, you know, making sure to change default passwords and stuff like that. What other tips or suggestions can you make for someone who's going to start using some open source tools? One thing I probably haven't mentioned yet was uh, the one site called privacytools.io. Well, I'm not sure if all of them are open source on there. There's a fair share of applications and browser extensions that I found on here that have been quite useful. Probably the one I can call out that I use daily actually is uh, Standard Notes. I'm always pushing it on people and trying to get more people to use it. But essentially, it's just a um, encrypted notepad and... I've been using it now for a while, just basically for uh, between notes at work or even stuff as simple as like keeping track of when I last changed the oil in my car. What's nice about it is you can use it across multiple different platforms. So it, it functions on Linux, iOS, Android, OS X, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think there's a platform they don't use. So I could ramble about all the different tools on here, but the site's worth checking out. It's uh, privacytools.io. Yeah, one thing to look for uh, with open source software to see like whether it's secure uh, is how often it's updated. Uh, like if a project's been abandoned and sitting there for four years, uh, maybe avoid it. Yeah. Uh, but if something has <laughs> if tons of commits works. that are recent, people are still submitting issues, There's you can tell that people have eyes on it. Yeah, it's definitely, like you said, definitely good to always, you know, make sure it's, it's still being used. Uh, things can fall by the wayside. And if it hasn't been updated in years, there's a chance that yeah, some vulnerability may affect it that hasn't been tweaked yet. This is more red team perspective, but you can find a lot of reconnaissance tools that are open source through GitHub or even in Cali at points. Um, and some of them are, they're normally heavily based around email recon or trying to link phone numbers to email addresses and stuff to that extent. There's always new stuff getting made. And a lot of times tools that are looking at something like Twitter or scraping Facebook or something to that extent, there's almost a constant battle between the third-party companies and the people writing the tools because they don't want that take. I remember there was a uh, tool that was used for Twitter that you could scrape tweets without even having a, an account. And um, Twitter is okay with letting you use an API, but they don't want you scraping that without knowing who's doing it or whatnot. I forget the exact name of the tool, but it would work for three days and then Twitter would make a change. It'd be broke for a week. It would work for four more days. And it, I think that's a pretty common occurrence for more of the red team open source tools for reconnaissance. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, to sit on this call. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having us. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, stay safe.